Today's episode is brought to you by the Full-Time MBA program. At Mays Business School, our Full-Time MBA program excels at providing each student with an individualized experience that emphasizes leadership. Our faculty and staff are committed to knowing who you are, where you have been, and where you want to go professionally. We mentor you so you can confidently assume a leadership role in all areas of your life, family, career, and community. The intensive 18-month program also offers hands-on experiences in managing challenges, time, and resources. Our intimate cohorts allow you to make meaningful connections with peers, faculty, career coaches, and program leadership. You will emerge from our program with enhanced self-esteem, cutting-edge professional knowledge and skills, and the ability to immediately excel in a leadership role. To find out more about how you can discover your power, transform yourself and your career, and impact our world, visit maze.tamu.edu slash ftmba. That's maze.tamu.edu slash ftmba. Thanks for listening. Welcome to May's Mastercast. I'm Shannon Deere, the Assistant Dean of Graduate Programs, and I'm here with your lovely host, Ben Wiggins. Good morning, Shannon. How are you today? I'm doing well. I probably need to come up with another adjective besides lovely. I think I use that one frequently. It's okay to have a routine there. awesome host, Ben Wiggins. Eh, Let's not get carried away. Okay. Well... In this episode, we have Professor Krychek again for part two. So if you didn't listen to part one, you might check that one out. But we're moving on to part two. And so, Ben, can you introduce Professor Krychek again, since I think we get to that a little bit into the episode. But if you want to just give a quick introduction for who he is. Just briefly, John Krychek is May's Business School's modern renaissance man. He is our professor of communications for the full-time MBA program. He is a musician. He's a painter. He's a former English teacher. He's a former accountant. He's been all over the place and done all manner of things. He uh, is married with two daughters and he's a man I admire a lot. Absolutely. And so in the last episode, you can hear a little bit more about how he balances all of those interests, manages his time, and is authentic with his students. So really encourage you to listen to that episode. On this episode, he talks a lot about emotional intelligence and building your brand. And those are incredibly important things for our all of us to think about whether you're a student or already out in the marketplace, uh, how to build your brand and really use that to, to capitalize on your career. Lesson number one, if you are under the age of, let's say, 18, maybe even under the age of 21, just don't tweet. Just don't tweet. Problematic tweets are killing so many careers right now, especially in like among public figures. It's just like... I don't know. I feel and I feel bad for some of those people and others. Maybe I don't feel as bad for. And then Facebook, I get like Twitter. There's just no way. I don't know. I don't think there's any way to look good on Twitter. Yeah. Well, I'm note note to our I'm going to leave that one alone. Okay. Be sure to listen to what John has to say about emotional intelligence. We hear from a lot of our employers that that is one of the most important factors for hiring and being successful within the company along with intellectual curiosity. So it's not about IQ. It really is about EQ and being emotionally smart and then being curious about finding out new things and learning new things to be able to do your job better. And so companies are adding that to their annual performance reviews and lots of good advice there from John in this episode. 
it's also about, and he, he uses this phrase, do you want to be a leader? And yeah. leadership is about admitting what you don't know. It's about curiosity. It's about service. It's about putting others before yourself. And it's about finding new ways to do things. Absolutely. Good. Well, enjoy the episode. Let's go back to your course. So you teach communications here and developing emotional intelligence is a critical part of that course. What do you think led you to put such emphasis on that? Let's let's stop for just a moment, if we can, Ben, and define emotional intelligence. Oh, sure. uh, I think a lot of people probably have some misconceptions about what it is. It's being aware of your own emotions. And unfortunately, a lot of people are not very in touch with their emotions. I, when I first started teaching this, I, I literally had people saying to me, emotions? What? What emo- This is business. business. What are you talking about? Of course, we all have emotions and um, many of us are not very much in touch with, with that. We repress them or we ignore them. So it's, it's an awareness of our own emotions and then the ability to manage those in the moment and, and be aware of them and, and how, they're, how they are impacting our performance and our response to, to situations. And then also understanding others' emotions and being able to read faces and being able to feel with people and kind of figure out where they are and, and then using that as a guide to how to interact with them. When you look at that definition, it communic- successful communication is absolutely requires emotional intelligence because you've got to communicate in a way that allows you to manage your own emotions and the kind of emotional currents that come through your, your own communication, as well as understanding where others are. You've got to feel with someone and have some sense of how they're responding to you in the world in order for you to reach that person. Mm-hmm. Obviously, business students may have some struggles with this, especially if they're coming in with an attitude of, I'm going to learn how to connect these dots and Mm -hmm. make this chart, and then I'm going to have an MBA. Uh, As with most MBA classes, students in your class should expect to be pushed, stretched. Mm -hmm. In what ways do you carry that out? Yeah, let me, if I can, let me respond to that in several ways. Uh, one, the idea that I'm going to connect these dots, I'm going to learn some business principles, and I'm going to get this MBA so that I can then be successful in business. That's great. Those things are important. But do you want to be a leader? You know, it, and, and a lot of our students come here saying, I want to work, work on my leadership skills. Well, if you want to be a leader, then you better work on your emotional intelligence. Uh, The old models of leadership are pretty much dead. The old models that say, I'm the leader. Here's how I do things. Everyone line up and do it my way. Uh, We understand now that that it's much more like parenting in the sense that you've got to, do you treat people differently? Yes, of course. If If you're paying attention, you do, because you know different people respond to different things. You treat people fairly, but if you're if you're approaching every person with the exact same approach, you're not going to be very successful. And so, and that requires emotional intelligence. So, how do I stretch my students? Well, you know, apparently, a lot of people, at least here in the United States, fear public speaking more than they fear cancer. And uh, uh, one way I stretch my students, you know, in my class, the stretch is not so much the grade. Uh, I know in some in some courses. It's incredibly stressful and it's difficult for them just to make a passing grade or make a, a B, or let alone an A. I would say it's relatively easy in my class to make at least make a B. So the grade itself is not so much the stretch. It's the it's the activities. So, uh, as you know, I do something called stand and deliver where I'll call on a student and have them get up in front of the room and basically give an impromptu presentation on a topic that they're not 
they're, they're not aware of until they're in that moment. So that kind of stretch. Um, I know a lot of students really, really are afraid of public speaking, get nervous about public speaking. So I really push them in that way. Writing assignments as well. I, I like to give challenging writing assignments. Um, I think you would agree that writing is something that is probably not probably writing is uh, effective writing is declining in our culture. People are struggling with with the ability to communicate effectively in writing. And so I, I push my students with with writing assignments. Uh, and then I, I think I also challenge their thinking. You know, I think that my lectures are designed to make people really think about themselves and think about uh, communication, think about interaction with others. So I, I think I challenge them in that sense as well. Interesting. So something you said a moment ago piqued my curiosity. I, I do think that especially longer form writing, we're not as good at that as we used to be. Yes. In what ways, though, do you feel like today's student is stronger than perhaps the student of yesteryear, the student of 20 years ago? In what ways has our culture developed better students? Nice. Yeah, I think one one way, uh, despite the fact that a lot of people still fear public speaking, I think our students now, as compared to t- 22 years ago when I first started teaching, are better at public speaking. There's more mm-hmm. of an awareness of the need for that, more of a, I don't know whether it's the Facebook culture or what, but there's more of an awareness that you have a brand, that you have a presence in the world. Everybody does. And I, I think 20 years ago, and certainly going back further than that, when I was when I was uh, in, in, in school myself, a lot of people had no interest in that, no awareness of that. They just were who they were and they did their job. And there's a little more of a sense now of a public that everyone has kind of a public persona and that that persona is very important. And it's it's part of the equation. It's part of work. It, it's part of their success is working on that. So the result of that is I've just been blown away at, at how good so many of our students are at public speaking. Uh, I think also just diversity. I think there's more of a, an awareness of the need for diversity and more more embracing of diversity and which which in turn has caused students to probably feel more comfortable about being themselves you know so those are probably some of the ways that we have improved we certainly have a lot of people my age like to complain about young people and you know back in my day you know we did this we did that there are some downsides to our culture now certainly and and I talk about them but there's certainly a lot of upsides. I'm encouraged by our students' performance these days. It's just, it's amazing to me how, how well they perform under pressure. So how do you feel about the current education system, not so much the students, but the system that they function within? Some of the things that you've said today would suggest that you probably like a very broad approach to education. Our, I would think that our education system generally encourages people to specialize a fair bit. Mm-hmm. So how good a job do you think that we're doing? You know, I mean, education is a competitive market. So the thought would generally be that market diverts value to entities that are carrying out their function within the market in a good way that are carrying out their function well and diverts resources away from entities that are not carrying out their function well. So you would think that the education system, broadly speaking, would improve over time. But what do you think we are doing well? And you can't say mindfulness. I'm going to cut that one for you. <laughs> you can't you can't say mindfulness. But what do you think the education system does well and what is it not doing as well? This is difficult for me to answer because I don't, I don't consider myself, despite the fact that I'm a professor, I don't consider myself much of an expert with respect to 
education with a big E. But but let me make a stab at it. I think that one of the things that we we do well today is it's not quite as cookie cutter perhaps as it was in the past. I know that when I was when I was going through my master's programs and my PhD work I did many moons ago, uh, back before the internet, <laughs> it was probably more rigid. There was probably more. This is how it's done, and you just fit yourself into that mold. I think there's a little more. Uh, it's a little more open now. Uh, there's a little more understanding that people go about things differently. I don't know, Ben. That I, I, I will. I will say. I'm not sure this is a fair answer to the question, but I'm just gonna just gonna kind of talk up, talk off the top of my mind about education today. I, I, one of the things that worries me a little bit is the whole online thing, and we are moving that direction. We are moving towards online, and I understand the necessity for it, and it's not gonna it, it's not gonna go away. It's only gonna become more and more of a reality. And in fact, business is conducted more and more that way too. I, a lot of my students tell me that uh, it, it benefited them greatly to give presentations in class, but virtually 90% of the presentations they give in their business career these days are virtual presentations. Mm. So it's all important stuff, but I miss the classroom in that sense. I think the classroom is so important, that, that marketplace of ideas and, and challenging each other and, and, and watching each other learn and, and that kind of community, that discourse community in the classroom that maybe you have – in a distance learning in an online setting, but not quite as palpably as you do in that classroom. So I miss that. But uh, I, I think I'm avoiding your question. I, I'm not sure what to say about the education system today. But there, so let me push back a little bit, actually. Yeah, please. I, th I think there is a lot of interesting stuff in what you just said. But, uh, and you and I agree on so many things. In this one, I think I may be the poster child for the online course. And I love Socratic interaction, but. I don't know how aware you are of this. I'm I'm a I'm a really bad classroom learner. I'm a really bad note taker. Um, I really so have. So that's what was going on. I'm like, no. <laughs> <laughs> so I have I have a lot of trouble staying engaged when yeah. I have to sit still. Yeah. And one of the benefits of an online learning method is when I get restless, I can get up, walk around, take a five minute break, come back to a video yes. or you know or whatever other online method of learning I'm using and it's not disrespectful. Right. And, and that was a constant struggle for me, especially in the first semester where we have so much time, you move so fast from one place to another and then you sit still for two hours mm -hmm. and then do the same thing again. And especially when we were dealing with career core, my first semester, it was a lot of sitting still. And ironically, the, the activity levels that are expected from us in that first semester, that wasn't a problem for me. I was like, mm -hmm. I, I got energy for days. Let me let me do stuff. But the sitting still for long periods of time was really tough for me. And I know I'm unusual in that way. But like you said, I do think that our ways of teaching young people and maybe people who aren't so young are more flexible now. Mm -hmm. And that's good. Yeah, I'm wondering if there's a method that addresses sort of both things at the same time. To me, the best answer is a small classroom where you can just have a conversation and the professor, the instructor, whoever, can lead a discussion. I, to me, that's the best answer. Mm -hmm. But if you have a larger class size, I do, I do think there's something to be said for giving the student a little bit more control over when and how the information flows in a way that you can still be respectful to the process. 
and uh, you know, I don't have a problem with that at all. I, I, I think that there's so many different ways you can go about it. And it's one of the cool things about a program like this. You have, hopefully you have a lot of variety with respect to the way the professors uh, approach things. And, you know, we have flipped classrooms and we have more and more things like case competitions outside of the classroom and our career services. People are doing a whole lot more with our students. Uh, I have to admit that there's something in me that says, as difficult as it may be, it's important for us to practice the ability to sit still for two hours. Ah, uh, yeah. You and I have <laughs> talked about this as well. Yeah. And, and, and I don't want to force feed that. And I, and I do want to recognize difference. Like I said, one of the good things about our, our culture now is we recognize diversity. And it's not only you know, racial and cultural diversity. It's, it's a diversity of the ways that people learn. And I think that's important for us to do it. But something triggers in me the response, Ben, you need to work on the ability to sit still for yes, two hours. Yes. And, and, and I did. I was forced to. Absolutely. And you did a great job, by the way. Thank you. Thank you. So let's move to some rapid fire questions. What do you consider your most valuable failure? I've had a lot of failures in my life. I think anytime you put yourself out there, you're going to fail. I think failure is really important. Uh, this may be a cop out, but I don't like to fail. I don't like the word failure when we're talking about this. I, valuable lessons, things that you tried that didn't work out, I think would be a, a better way I'd like to frame it. Sure. I mean, a divorce, uh, for example. Uh, obviously, I've, I've, I've learned a lot from, from a, a failure like that. But I, I think I'll choose to answer, answer your question by saying, uh, again, not so much a failure, but my attempt to be an accountant it really didn't work out too well. It's just not me, you know, the traditional accountant. And, uh, and I was working at Cooper's and Librand and I was potentially, I think I, I had a career there and I was doing a good job, but it, it really wasn't feeding who I am. And so it didn't work out, but it was extremely valuable experience. Mm -hmm. I learned a whole lot and I wouldn't be right here in the business school today, if not for that, that failure of mine, if you want to call it a failure. Okay. So one lesson I take from that is you got to try stuff, man. You, you know, get out of your, your box and try stuff even, and don't be afraid to fail because I mean, we, we say that it's cliche, but it's just so true that you, you learn from failure. You learn from falling down, making an attempt, getting back up and dusting yourself off and moving on. So I would, I would just say to people, don't be afraid of failure. Great. I enjoy your openness. You are a very open guy. Do you think people still have misconceptions about you? What if, if so, what do you think their biggest misconception is? Well, I'm told that, and I'm, I think I'm going to trust this, that some people see me as aloof and that overly critical of, okay. of others. Okay. I, I think it is a misconception. I, I deeply care about people and I really want to help others. I, I tend to be very honest. In fact, this goes back even when I was a child. My nickname in the, my neighborhood by the adults was Honest John. And <laughs> I, I've always been a truth teller. And so the downside of being a truth teller is that people think you're overly critical. Maybe people think you're perhaps arrogant or aloof at times. And the reality is I'm, I'm trying to help people. And, and I've found a profession. I found a job that allows me to be a truth teller in order to help people. But I, I think that does have, carry its downside, which is sometimes people think I'm overly critical. My stand and deliver, we talked about stand and delivers. I wasn't going to tell this story, but my first stand and deliver in your class, you actually stopped me in the middle of it. And you, there were a few words and phrases that you pointed to as inaccessible, which was fair. 
it was it was a fair thing to say. And then I came up to see you in your office a couple of days later, and you said we we sat there talking for a few minutes, and you said, I don't know if you're aware of this, but you come off very differently here one on one than you do in the classroom. And I'm not sure why that was. I know that I was much more comfortable. I felt that I could engage with you in a way that I had not been able to in the classroom. But I think that was more just a function of not being as familiar with my fellow students. There were a lot of other things in the room that were, I don't know if I would say distracting me, but that the first several weeks of your class were very challenging for me. I felt I feel like I found my stride a little bit, a yeah, little you bit did. later on. You did. And I, I think you know this, but what I was trying to tell you there was that you're you're an extremely engaging, warm person, but you were coming off as a little bit distant in mm. front of the class and I was just mm-hmm. pushing you to be more yourself and, and connect with people. And it's funny. Nietzsche Nietzsche says, stare into the abyss and the abyss stares also into you. But I found the opposite to be true as well. When you open yourself up, when you say, here's my soul, see who I am, people respond by doing the same. Yeah. They say, oh, well, here, here I am. Yeah. Here I am. See me as well. Let's be kin to each other and be kind to each other, hopefully. That's beautiful. So if you could have anyone as a mentor for one day, who would it be? You know, there's so many people. Um, a business person I've thought of there is Bill George. I don't know if you know who Bill George is, a former CEO of Medtronic. And he's a guy you'll see on business programs on television uh, making uh, as a commentator and whatnot. I've written several books uh, on leadership. True North mm-hmm. is a book I think you probably encountered. Yes. He's a guy I greatly admire. But, you know, you, you just said you mentioned kindness mm-hmm. a minute ago. One of the... One of the people that comes to mind when people ask me, who are your heroes? Who would you like to mentor? Is actually the Dalai Lama. Uh, and when asked uh, to describe his religion, do you know what the Dalai Lama responded? He said, my religion is kindness. Hmm. And I think he's a guy who I could probably benefit from being around for a day, you know, and, and just really seeing that, seeing that kind of true embodied kindness. It makes me think of what you said earlier about meditation. I don't think there's, so my religion, uh, so I, I, I happen to be a Christian, but I mentioned to Shannon a few weeks ago that if I were choosing a mentor, I would maybe choose a religious leader from a religion that's not my own. That's a because great answer. I think some of the, some of the problems in the world right now, and I think that everyone would agree that that we have some problems happening at this moment. I think some of that comes from, as much as I hate to say it as a religious person, some of that comes from the fear of religious people to engage with other religions yeah. and to say, what is good here? Yeah. What what can be what benefit can be had here? What what can I learn from these people whose way of life is different than mine? And there's sort of Maybe the fear is that if my own religion is the true one, as I believe, then I I want to distance myself from anything other than what I find to be the inerrant truth, mm-hmm. because that that's sort of false or hollow in some way. Yeah. And I don't think that's true. There are many people who believe in Islam. Islam is not my own religion, but I think that there's so much to be gained from people who see the world in that way and being willing to adopt a different perspective and say, what is valuable about this? What is good in this Mm -hmm. um, is so important. And that actually, I think, is something that we don't do well yet, but we are getting better at. 
is not being xenophobic about other philosophies. Amen. So, um, well said, what is your fondest memory of something that's happened since you've been at Texas A&M? Of course, student awards. I've, I've won several teaching awards and those are great memories, especially the ones that were voted on by the students that, mm-hmm. that just was incredibly touching. But, but I'll mention something that, that was pretty important to me. Um, a few years ago, you may recall we had uh, Richard Spencer yes. uh, speak here on campus and there was a, a, a pretty uh, vigorous response, yes. shall I say. Yes. And I was there. I, I, I showed up and I was just so impressed that in this traditionally conservative university, we had such an outpouring of peaceful demonstrators to say, not, not I'm going to prevent this guy from speaking. I'm mm-hmm. not going to scream and shout, but I'm just going to show up in a spirit of love and diversity and openness. And it's something that, that I don't think, I'm not sure you would have seen that at A&M 20, 30 years ago, maybe. But it, it was is a beautiful thing to see. Yeah. It really was, and I, I'll be honest, it it got a little ugly towards the end. There were some people that started getting a little bit violent and saying some things to the policemen who were there that were disrespectful. And at that at that point, my wife and I checked out and said, "Okay, it's time to go home." But but for that hour or so, where it was just a spirit of not challenging anything, just to say we're here and uh, we want our voice of peace and diversity to be heard, it was beautiful. It's such a tough line to walk, the line between freedom of speech mm-hmm. and I, I don't even know I don't even know what the other side of the line would be, but to to tell someone you can say more or less, there there are certain exceptions, but to say more or less whatever you want, even if I think it is terrible. Yeah. And atrocious. Yeah. And to allow people to do those things is some of what makes our country great. Yeah, I think we've lost our way a little bit there, and and ironically, the left. It's I think it's one of the problems with the left today is is you know deplatforming speakers and whatnot. And, and and traditionally, the left was the was the side of free speech. Mm-hmm. And and I understand it's it's a, as you say it's a very complicated issue. But uh, man, I th- I think um, I I think we have to get back to that. I I dis I, I disagree with what you're saying, but I defend your right to say it. Right. Right. What uh, what do you have coming up? Do you have anything to plug? What's going on? Uh, what's going on with your art? What's going on with your music? What should what should people know about? Uh, well, if you ask me what I have to plug, what my first thought I have is vote. It's not not <laughs> not me, but I want to plug voting. People vote, please. We have upcoming elections. It's important that you vote. I've always got something to plug, Ben. Of course, uh, I have a new band called Alone Stars. It's my it's my new yeah, it's my new live thing, and we are playing first Friday November at the Grand Stafford. I don't know when this this uh, interview is going to air, uh, but if it's before November first Friday, then we we will be playing the first Friday at Grand Stafford downtown Bryan. So got that to plug. And Leavenworth, we're working on our uh, third CD. We're about halfway done with that. So hopefully, if not this fall, early next. Um, and in 2019, we'll be releasing that. I have uh, I have the first two. I haven't listened to all of them yet, but uh, I'm looking forward to the next one. Yeah, thank you. And we'll close with some uh, some good bull, an opportunity to recognize someone else for something great that they have done. You got any good bull for us today? Yeah, I would like to recognize my wife. Oh. Uh, my wife has is coming up on her 
15 year sober date. Oh. Um, and she's, she's not only successfully sober for 15 years, she's devoting her life to helping others live a more healthy life and especially people with chronic pain and, and people who have addiction. Uh, but just people in general, I, I think she's, she's just really inspiring that she's pretty much devoting her life to helping others manage their life in a more healthy way. And uh, so love to recognize her for that. I have a family member who had a sobriety birthday recently as well. Those yeah. are, those are very impressive milestones. I, I don't at some level, it's, it's hard for me to get to understanding the compulsion Mm-hmm. that a person is is generally born with uh, that they eventually have to seek sobriety but I think I think doing our best to put ourselves in the shoes of people who who struggle with things like that is is a big part of developing empathy which I'm sure absolutely. you'll agree is just vitally important absolutely to the human experience so congrats to your wife yeah and, and best wishes with that walk in the future any final thoughts? You almost always have something on your mind. Any any final thoughts for the listeners? Well, I'll just uh, I I think I'll just conclude by thanking you. This is um, thank you not only for inviting me, but thank you for this project. It's a it's a great idea. I love to see your creativity at at work here, and and I applaud you and Shannon and the program for doing this. I think it's a great idea, and look forward to hearing uh, what guests you have in the future. I'm looking forward to it too. As as we discussed before before we went live, I have, I just have this need to understand people and to know why they are the way they are and what makes them do the things they do, find out what they fear, what makes them brave, what do they keep to themselves? I want to know those things. And I'm not, and I'm not afraid to tell them those things about me either. That's great. So anyway, uh, so that concludes our show today. Thank you guys for tuning in. We appreciate you. We appreciate the opportunity to share ourselves with you and we'll see you on the next one. Thanks and gig them. We hope you enjoyed that episode with Professor Krychek. He talked about a lot of great things. Uh, one of the things that he certainly has expertise in is in writing. And he talked a little bit about the importance of writing and building credibility and, and your brand and about this text message generation. What thoughts do you have on that, Ben? Let me reiterate. Don't tweet. <laughs> but, Just in case you didn't listen to the intro. So tweet. I, I think it's important to pursue opportunities to improve our long form writing. I, I think that our our culture and especially younger generations are very, very good at short at mm-hmm. short form writing. We've become very good at distilling things into you know, short posts like little face Facebook posts tweets don't tweet and just uh, instagram you know Mm -hmm. other ways of saying things shorter ways of saying things packing a lot of value into just a few words i think we're very good at that Mm -hmm. but in terms of explore really exploring nuance i think that that is a skill that is atrophying to -hmm. some degree so i do think that it's important to take opportunities to work on that take take an english class even if you're you know even if you're a business major look for classes where you will be forced to write. And that's not just in terms of people think of an English class as they're reading and writing fiction. It's not always the case. Like Warren Buffett is a great writer mm-hmm. and he doesn't write fiction that I know of, but he is very clear mm-hmm. and writing is 
not just about making sure you can be understood. It's about making sure that you can't be misunderstood Mm. and the ability to be two steps ahead of your audience and say, how could they misinterpret this? How can I avert the possibility of being misunderstood is one of the most important skills in writing. And that is something that I think we are not as good at perhaps as we used to be. Yeah, I think that's really important. And and so much of the way that we communicate now is in writing and and not just I mean, definitely short form, but even emails are not are not a paper, but True. but they're much longer and, and that we have to communicate so much so clearly, also concisely in email is really important for people to do well. And a lot of interactions that you have may only be in writing. And so where that your brand development is captured in your writing is really important. And I think we sometimes underestimate that, underestimate how important writing is, but that may be the only interaction that some people have with us. Yes. And tone is particularly important to consider there. It's someone used to tell me, this was back when I was working in insurance. Someone used to tell me, smile when you answer the phone, people Mm -hmm. can tell. The other thing is pay attention to your tone in writing and Structure your sentences in such a way that they can always be taken as collaborative. You want to avoid coming off as harsh and clipped, especially in an arena where your words are your subtext. Yeah. So. Yeah. The smiling when you answer the phone. I see you smiling as you say this. It's important because it makes people more interested in what you're saying. And the the more success there's. There's some studies on sales and closing a deal is easier if you're smiling. And so even if you're not in the mood to smile, if you put a pencil in your teeth, it makes you (laughs) it makes you make the motion of smiling and can be really effective in changing your mood and in making you more effective in your communication. It's it's an emotional feedback loop. Yeah. Yeah. Even if you just smile, it will make you happier. I don't know why that works, but it does. It does. Um. I thought it was really interesting when he talked about brand being so important. One of the things that I know your class did when you first came into the MBA program was you had someone from the Bush School talk about brand and they did an activity where, and she said, y'all had just met each other, but she said, if you have breathed the same air, you know, someone's brand. And I thought that was really powerful. It's something that I've thought about a lot of Mm -hmm. just being in the same room with someone, your brand is apparent and how conscious that means that we have to be oftentimes of our brand. And one of the activities that she had y'all do is she had everybody put a piece of paper on their back and then go around the room and write each other's brand. So you would write someone's brand on their back. And I often think if someone could anonymously write my brand on my back right now, what would they say about me? And so that that's definitely a form of kind of accountability to think about and be conscious about your brand. It's true. Krychek said something to me that we touched on in the episode uh, as we got farther into the first semester of business school. He said, you come off very differently in a small group Mm -hmm. or one-on-one than you do in a larger group. And that was something that I had done. I realized that I had kind of done it on purpose. Uh, Sometimes, especially in bigger groups, I kind of like to lay back a little bit Mm -hmm. and just see you know, where the dynamics of the group are and so forth. But the unintended consequence of that 
was that I was coming off as a little bit aloof, which is the strangest thing in the world to me, just as it mm-hmm. was the strangest thing in the world for him to hear from his students and even now to hear from his students that he occasionally comes off as aloof. But I think especially among people who are new to us, it is very easy for them to assume the worst. So you really have to make a special effort to pick your spots because this is this is really important for me not to appear as though I'm trying to take things over because I have a, a pretty big personality sometimes and can come off that way. So I try to avoid being that. But then the other side of the coin is you have to also avoid being perceived as distant. Mm -hmm. So it's a fine line. Mm -hmm. It's really hard to do both things well Mm -hmm. at the same time, but you have to make sure that the warmth in your heart comes through. Yeah. I think, and that goes back to that authenticity that you talked about Mm -hmm. in the last episode of if you're always trying to dial back who you really are, then that doesn't work as effectively either. Uh, One of the things that I was, I was reflecting on that feedback that Krychek gave you about your presentations and trying to think what, what what I observed during your time in the program from that and what I think I saw where I saw you transition and I know from your Berkman that you need to feel like you're making a contribution like you are valued that you are credible and one of the things that I saw not to tell you who you are um, but I think you know all of those things fairly accurate yes Oh, I, I would say so, but yeah. but I'm interested in your well, observation. And so what I saw in the evolution of your presentations was when you first were presenting to large groups and you had many opportunities to do that, it was a lot about telling them what to do. That sounds, that sounds a little bit bad, but it was more like you could, I remember you did one on time management. It was like, you could do this. You could do that. You could. And that's a different perspective than I think where you come from now, which is I do this and it might help you uh, versus you should, you know, I'm, I'm the righteous, credible one in this room, um, which is not what you were trying to project, but what your Berkman says you need to feel. Mm -hmm. And that, that, came across maybe more aloof or less authentic than who I really know you to be and who I saw you evolve into as you journeyed through the program. Interesting. We'll chew on that that for a minute. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. One of the other things that Krychek talked, you and Krychek talked a little bit about was online learning. And I know you mentioned that you really like learning online. It's also my preferred method, which may be in part because neither of us can sit still for more than five minutes. So Sometimes two and a half. Yeah. Yeah. Give me 30 seconds and I'm good. But <laughs> after that. So I think I want to hear more about some of the things that you like about online learning and I'll share some of the things that I like too. So as I mentioned to Professor Krychek, I do like being able to actually this plays back with what you were talking about earlier in terms of. 45 and 15 Mm -hmm. or, you know, sometimes for me, it's as short as, especially if it's really challenging cognitive stuff, sometimes I need a break after 10, 12 minutes Mm -hmm. and I just grind on one particular problem. And then once I solve it, my brain's like, please give me air. Mm -hmm. Um, So for online learning, it would just depend on the course, but it's really nice to be able to control the time domain without being disrespectful. Mm -hmm. And the it is possible in a classroom setting to control the time domain by getting out your phone, but that is disrespectful. Mm -hmm. So 
Um, so I like the idea of being able to respect the process while also being able to listen to my mind, to mm -hmm. quote my roommate from earlier. And being able to do both of those things at the same time is really valuable to me. I agree. What about you? Yeah, for me, it's being able to learn at my own pace. So I'm rarely the smartest person in the room, especially around think, here. No, no, no. I don't think Keep I listening. That. I'm not I'm not being self-deprecating. I'm rarely the smartest person in the room, but I am often the fastest thinker. And those are oh. two different things. And I, that oftentimes I think people misinterpret for, wow, she's really smart. It's I'm not I'm not even that smart, but I do think very quickly. True. Well, I, I mean, it, true. OK, I am above average in intelligence, but but I'm not. Around here, I'm not the smartest person. I think quicker than a lot of other people think. And so I've already processed what that professor has said, and now I'm super bored, right? I mean, I got the point. Let's let's move on. And I think I do it, I mean, I do it in, conver in personal conversation. Like, okay, I, I hear you, let's go. And people need to feel heard, right? And, and a lot of people think out loud. I do think out loud often. And I've already processed what you're thinking. Let's Let's move on. And Sometimes I get that inaccurate, but a lot of times I am accurate. And so with online learning, if I have already got something, I can put it on two times speed and let's go. And you're moving now at the pace of my brain. I'm happy. Let's keep going one and a half speed. Maybe if it's something I need a little bit more time to process. But at the same time, if I'm learning something really difficult for me, I can put it on half speed and watch it multiple times or watch it the first time through on normal speed and then the second time through on two times speed to make sure I really got it. You know, so there's just so much more flexibility in the way that we learn. And and I told you I was going to bring the ukulele back in the last episode, but Ryan and I, my husband and I are learning how to play the ukulele and we've learned predominantly online. And that's, and I definitely use that there. I use that if I'm learning a new tool in Excel or finance, I use two times speed or something like that. But mm -hmm. certainly with the ukulele, it's been fun because people can understand that. So when we talk about online learning, I oftentimes bring in that example of if I've already seen this song played before and I just need to find how to play this one part of it, I can jump to that part in the video or I can watch it on two times speed just to see how they're doing the strum. Or if I really don't know the strum, I can put it on half speed or 75.75 speed and really follow along really slowly and get that muscle memory down. And so it gives you the flexibility online learning does to learn at your own pace. I, I use a lot of videos, online videos in my classes, and I like it because I really feel like it does level the playing field with students who the material is not coming as naturally. And mm -hmm. so they can rewatch a topic multiple times, or if they've got it, they watch it once and move on. And so it really gives them the opportunity to be self-directed in their learning and meet their own needs in a way that I don't think classroom learning oftentimes is capable of doing because it's, you have to hear it when they first say it, or if you missed it, you missed it. There's really no way to go back and get that content. One place where I apply the half speed, double speed thing you were talking about earlier is when I'm watching high level Overwatch streamers. I enjoy playing <laughs> the video game Overwatch. I'm not very good at it, but I've, I have put a lot of time into it. And when I watch high level streamers, 
I have to frequently, I have to watch what they're doing at three quarter speed and sometimes mm-hmm. half speed just to be able to follow everything going on with the cooldowns and the ultimates and all of that stuff, the way that they're, the way that they're handling, creating different, especially the snipers, like the, the way that they create different angles to shoot from, like it's the, it is the only activity in my life where I have ever felt old. Mm. Where I've ever felt I'm coming at this very late in life, mm-hmm. relatively speaking. And I've played I played Halo when I was in college. I played Goldeneye when I was younger than that. Mm-hmm. But this just feels different. Mm-hmm. And I was playing with a couple of high schoolers that are in our Discord community for my esports business last night. And these guys are grandmasters and they're just playing at a different level. And it's mm-hmm. just gonna take me longer to learn. And that's okay. Like I think yeah. some people would be deeply uncomfortable with I'm not good at it yeah. and it's foreign to me, so I don't want it. Like I, like Professor Krychek perhaps, am more oh, this is an interesting mountain to climb. Huh. Let's see how tall it really is. Yeah. I've always um you, in the in episode zero, you asked me what my greatest failure was and I hadn't really thought about it enough, but I've reflected on it a lot more since then. And I think if I could categorize all of my greatest failures and and in in hindsight, I don't really regret them, but as quitting things that I wasn't the best at, not just that I wasn't good at, but like, oh, I got third place in the swimming meet. Well, I'm going to just quit swimming now. I mean, which is still pretty good. And I'm, Mm -hmm. I'm going to quit because I'm not, I'm not first place. And which is really pretentious. Um, I was a lot younger then, but I have learned Uh, My husband and I have also picked up rock climbing Mm -hmm. and that's been a really helpful learning experience for me with not being the best at something. I'm for a long time. I wasn't even decent. I mean, it was, I cannot even get two feet up this wall. Not not out of fear. I just physically didn't have the strength to get two feet up the wall. And now I can, it is, it's all right in that grip strength. It's really tough. Um, But now I can climb I'm climbing five nines, which if you don't rock climb, that doesn't really mean anything, but you start at nothing and then five, six, five, seven, five, eight. And so I'm climbing at a respectable level. I'm not good. My husband's climbing like five, 11, five, 12, but I'm climbing at a respectable level. But had I quit, I wouldn't have enjoyed that quality time that my husband and I have together. I wouldn't have enjoyed the accomplishments that I've had. And so I do have competition in my top five strengths and I'm competitive with everybody else on the wall, especially the other women. I'm like, oh, she could climb that. I've really got to be able to do that. But I've learned to set my own goals. And it's it's kind of like you said with Overwatch, being comfortable with where you are. And that's fine. It's fine if I'm not the best. And I'm going to set a goal for me, for myself to do this route or to learn that song on the ukulele. And I will never be a professional. You're kind of at that. I think it's, I'm kind of at that age in life where I'm like, yeah, I'm never going to be a professional X, right. Whatever that is, but I can do it for fun Mm -hmm. and it's okay to not be the best. Yes, it is. It is okay not to be the best. Kind of. (laughs) kind of okay no it's okay well it's only by not being the best that you eventually do become the best so if you decided i want to be a i want to be that level of rock climber depending on how much time you had to put into it who knows maybe no no not happening no no no. (laughs) i mean i'm like no physically it's just it's not what i was made to do Mm. which is fine fair enough fair enough i can do it for fun the point the point though is if you did decide I want to, I want to push my boundary and see exactly how far in this I can get. I mean, that's all anybody can do in anything. Mm -hmm. And it is only by good to great by Jim Collins. He talks about all successful organizations. They had an un 
unerring belief that they would get to where they wanted to go, but they also accepted 100% the sometimes brutal reality of exactly where they were at that mm-hmm. point in time. And then finding a way to connect those two dots to each other. That's where the success is. Yeah. That's so important. So one of the other things I like about online learning, um, cause we've kind of journeyed to multiple topics now mm-hmm. as we like to do, but bring it back to online learning. One of the other things I like about online learning is that it gives a voice to all. So discussions can someone who is not as extroverted in the classroom or who even just doesn't process as quickly. And so they're thinking something, but they're thinking it through and I've already blurted it out that it gives online gives them time to think and process. And I think discussions that I've had in online classroom. So I took some of my PhD courses were online and discussions that I've had there are oftentimes much more thoughtful, Mm. uh, much richer conversations because people do have time to think about what they're saying. It is in writing and, and on there kind of forever. And so you're more (laughs) careful or thoughtful about your words, which is nice. And then it's not that hogging the airtime business that sometimes happens in the classroom. Yeah. I think you and I are both pretty quick to raise our hands and say, we know the answer, mm-hmm. but we're also after doing it once or maybe twice, I think we're more yeah. apt to be quiet and maybe let other people talk, but not everyone is that way. No, not everyone is that way. People love the airtime in, in our classrooms, especially our MBA classrooms. So yeah. something to watch for. I think also with with that giving a voice to all, there's just less power dynamics at play. So oh. we know from research that women get called on less in class than men, for example. We know that. We know that women get called on less. And so on an online environment, everyone has a more equal voice. Now you could still discount what someone with a female name says in an online environment, but at least it's there, right? It's out there versus in a classroom where it may or may not get out there. I would be interested in here in learning how much of, how much of like women being called on less in Mm -hmm. class than men, what percent of it is how often women raise their hands to Mm -hmm. speak in class and what percent is once they raise their hands, how often are they called on? Because addressing the problem, I think, partly lies in figuring out where the majority of the problem is. Right. I I can find the study, but um, it's in calling on women who have their hand raised. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So so the the training then is more for the professors Mm -hmm. than it is for the students. Yeah. And I think it's both sides for sure. I, I think part of it is that over time, women are conditioned to know they're not going to get called on and Mm. so are then less likely to raise their hands. But certainly, um, certainly even just if hands are raised, it's easier to ignore, Hmm. which is interesting. Uh, One of the things that I love about this podcast so much is just how human it is. And I think John definitely showed us that he in particular is always so human and definitely an open book. Mm -hmm. He's certainly open with his students. And, you know, I I like that. I think that it shows a lot of what we often say about this being an Aggie family and us all being in this together as colleagues or as faculty students. And so when John talks about his wife celebrating sobriety, that's not an unusual thing. I mean, it's not uncomfortable or unusual for that conversation to come up. And I love that. I love that that is a comfortable thing that we can talk about, that we can talk about the real challenges and struggles that people face. And, and because we care and we support each other. And, you know, if, 
if someone's spouse was currently struggling with addiction, that would not be uncomfortable to talk about. And it would be a place where we would definitely be supportive of students or colleagues. Um, and that's it's a nice place to be when that's the case. You and I are both part of a church group that places a lot of emphasis on vulnerability and honesty. Mm-hmm. And this is another area where you kind of have a fine line because you want to respect people's privacy. Um, you want to respect the level at which they want to talk about something. Mm-hmm. But such as such as they are comfortable talking about something, you want to hear them wherever they are, whether that's sunshine and puppies or something very dark indeed. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that we got in, into anything super dark with Professor Krychek, but if that was what he wanted to talk about, you know, when you ask someone what was your greatest failure or your most valuable failure, you have to be prepared to listen to whatever they say and you have to honor whatever it is that they bring to you. And it may, there may be times where on this podcast, we deal with some, we deal with some very, very heavy stuff. Mm-hmm. Professor Krychek mentioned his divorce and then didn't get into a ton of detail about it, which is his right. Absolutely. But, but if he had wanted to talk in more detail about it, I would have listened and mm-hmm. we would run it. That's one way that I think American business failed American business people for a long time was in failing to see them as people, mm-hmm. as people who have problems and who are imperfect and who make mistakes and real, real life mistakes that change lives for the mm-hmm. worst sometimes. And that's what life is about. We have to acknowledge those things. We have to acknowledge them in, at the appropriate times mm-hmm. in the workplace, at church and at home. And if we're not doing those things, we are failing ourselves and failing each other. Absolutely. And putting on that mask doesn't really help anybody to be greater. So if we really are in the business, you know, for us in the business of transforming students' lives, then we have to be with them in those lives, especially when it gets messy. Yeah. Yeah. And, and honestly, the first year of the MBA program is a time when it can seem hard to breathe Mm -hmm. and, and our stress behaviors can come out Mm -hmm. and any history that we, any, you know, any past history that we have, you know, that, that stuff can surface at those Mm -hmm. times and that's okay. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you for joining us on this journey. We'll close out this episode here and we hope that you enjoyed the episode and our conversation. Thanks, Shannon. Thanks.